0: You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. And I just love that we pray for a nation every week. Don't you love that? What better way to keep us focused on the mission of taking the gospel to the nations, right? So if you haven't downloaded that app, do so, and join us in praying not just on Sundays, but throughout the week for the nation's Of the world and the advancement of the gospel. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, will you grab that and go with me to the book of Acts? We're going to be this morning in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, a very famous passage. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. There are stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can grab one now. You can grab one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. Take that Bible with you and just start reading it and let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And if you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand out of reverence and eagerness. We are ready to hear what the Lord has to say to us this morning. So listen carefully to these words recorded for us in Acts chapter 9. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have just begun a series called Faithful Presence. It's a series on evangelism. We're learning how to do evangelism together. And by evangelism, we mean the people of God presenting the message of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit that the lost shall come to accept Jesus as their Savior and serve Him as their King in the community of His church. Now last week in the first week of this series we asked some important preliminary questions. What isn't evangelism? What is evangelism? And we arrived together at this all-embracing definition. Now I hope you left last week feeling challenged. That was my goal, that you would leave feeling challenged. Today I hope you leave feeling inspired. Last week we asked the questions what isn't evangelism? What is it? Today we're going to ask the important question can people really change? Can people in my life really change? Now, this is the question that, when asked and answered biblically, it will inspire us. It will motivate our evangelistic efforts because the Bible's indisputable answer is yes, people can change. People in your life and in mine, they can change. The Bible is teeming with change stories conversion narratives, the most famous one, probably the most famous conversion story in the history of Christianity, is the one we'll look at this morning in Acts chapter 9. It's the conversion story of the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. This same man that we'll read about in Acts chapter 9, he wrote many of the letters contained in our New Testament. And in one of those letters, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he holds out his conversion As an example, as a model, as if to say, all true conversions will look like mine. Now what what does he mean by that? As we read this story in Acts 9, we're going to come across some pretty bizarre stuff. Does Paul mean that to experience genuine conversion we need to have the same physical manifestations that he had? Do we need to fall to the ground? Should we expect to go blind? No, of course not. The physical manifestations that accompanied Paul's conversion, they were unique to him, but the spiritual elements, the spiritual elements in his conversion story will be present in all true conversions. What are they? The elements are three. The first is a collision, a gracious collision. The second is conflict, inner conflict. And the third is change. Change of heart, change of life. So that's where we're going in Acts 9. Collision, conflict, change. You ready? Here we go. Let's start with the gracious collision first. Look at how this story begins back in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now let's back it up to verse 1 for a second here. We need to understand the backstory first. Verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder. What do we mean, still breathing? What's his story here? We first meet this man, Saul of Tarsus, back in Acts chapter 7 and 8. We find him at the scene of the death of a man named Stephen. Stephen preaches... He preaches the gospel, the good news of Jesus. The crowd doesn't like it. And so the crowd gathers around Stephen to stone him to death. They remove their outer garments so that they can throw the rocks as hard as they can and so that Stephen's blood isn't splattered on their fine outer garments. I know it sounds more like a scene from a Quentin Tarantino movie, but it's actually in the Bible. But here's what we also learn. Saul was there. On the day when this mob gathers around Stephen, when they stone him to death, Saul was there. In fact, the mob, they lay their garments at Saul's feet. The day the very first Christian martyr, Stephen, was executed for his faith, Saul was present and he was pleased. And we also learn in Acts 8 that this event, the death of Stephen, is the beginning of what's called a great persecution in early Christianity. In fact, this is the first time the word persecution is used in the book of Acts, when Stephen is martyred. Saul, now in Acts 9, takes the initiative to expand the persecution of Christians. Beyond Jerusalem, he wants to track down Christians wherever they are and make sure they get what's coming to them. So that's what it means when it says Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He gets permission. His plan is to travel to Damascus. And when he gets to Damascus, he's looking for followers of the way. See, in the earliest days, there was no such thing as Christianity. The term, that is, didn't exist. Believers were called followers of the way. Certainly because Jesus himself in John 14 had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in the earliest times, Christians were known as followers of the way. Paul is going after them. Saul of Tarsus, he's going after them. He's heading to Damascus looking for these men and women who follow the way. Why? That he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. His plan is to find them, to capture them, to bring them back. Now why does he feel this way about Christians? We need to know a little about Saul. Saul was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. And what that means is that Saul knew the book of the law very, very well. He knew the Old Testament, the Torah. He knew the books of the law like a boy knows the rooms of his house. He had studied the Old Testament scriptures. Why then did he have such a problem with Christianity, with the followers of the way? Saul was looking for a Messiah. But it never occurred to him that the Messiah would be crucified. You see, Saul had the idea of a Messiah who would come as a great warrior king, a warrior hero. The Messiah was to be the one who liberated God's people. He was thinking another Exodus event. He was thinking someone like a King David fighting Goliath. He was looking for a warrior. Never did it occur to him that the Messiah would make himself vulnerable, would make himself killable, would lay down his life. And yet this is the message that the Christians were proclaiming, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he died for our sins. Paul would have none of it. Saul would have none of it. And so he set out to stop the spread of this poisonous teaching, the way. And that's why he goes to Damascus. He goes to Damascus on his way, it says in verse 3, more than just physically on his way. He is set, he is settled in his thinking. Now, that's important for us to see at the beginning of this story. Saul was not a man who was apathetic. No, no, no. He was not apathetic. He was angry. He was not indifferent. No, not this man. This man was indignant. He was as opposed to Christianity as a person could possibly be on his way, settled in his thinking, passionate in his persecution. And as he approaches Damascus, that's when this gracious collision occurs. He sees a light from heaven. He falls to the ground and he hears a voice saying, I am Jesus. Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now what was it that knocked Saul to the ground on that day? Here he is traveling, settled in his thinking. He has his plan. He's resolved. Jesus appears to him. Out of nowhere. So there was no way Saul was expecting this. And he's knocked to the ground. What is it that knocks him to the ground on that day? Later in his writings, and his letters, Saul tells us on four separate occasions about his conversion story. In Galatians 1, he says it was grace. I was called that day by grace. In 1 Timothy 1, he uses this language. The grace of God overflowed for me. So you see... It was a tidal wave of grace that knocked him to the ground that day. It was God's love. God chose and cherished him. He wasn't expecting it. He wasn't looking for it. It was a gracious collision, and it brought everything to a halt. Everything to a halt. This is how all true conversion begins. This gracious collision that brings everything to a halt. But there's a second part. The second part we see in this story is conflict. Inner conflict. Keep reading in the story. Verse 7 The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate Nor drank. Saul is on his way to Damascus, settled in his thinking, passionate in his persecution. Jesus appears, and as he sees the risen Jesus, all of a sudden, he can see nothing. He's blinded. Now, why would Jesus do this to Saul? Why would Jesus take away his sight? The physical blindness is a symbol, I think, of Saul's spiritual blindness. See, in this condition, in this stage of his life, he could not see the truth. Spiritually, he was blind. So it's a symbol, but it's more than that. It's more than a symbol. This physical blindness is also an aid in taking Saul to the truth. It's a casting into the darkness in order eventually to see the light. Notice that when he goes to Damascus, his friends have to carry him because after all, he's blind. He doesn't know how to get there. But on verse nine, in verse 9, he has some companions that are traveling with him and they take him to Damascus and for three days he's without sight. He neither eats nor drinks. What is Saul doing for those three days? Three days, what is he doing? He's fasting and he's praying. I get occasionally migraine headaches. I wonder if anyone else does. I don't know what triggers them, but I can generally tell when they're about to set in because just before a bad migraine headache sets in, my vision begins to get a little bit blurry. And all of a sudden my eyes become very sensitive to light. Now if I catch it early enough, I can prevent the headache from setting in in full. And here's how I do it. I have to go into a completely dark room and lay down and close my eyes. No light. And if I do that, early enough, I'll prevent the headache from setting in. But you know what I've learned after years and years and years of migraine headaches and trying to prevent them? There's only so much you can do while lying in the dark. There's only so much you can do. For three days, Saul is lying in the dark. What on earth did he do? He fasted, he prayed, he thought, and he rethought. He rethought everything he knew about God, everything he knew about himself. He had to because he had been confronted now with the living Jesus. And that meant that Jesus is the Messiah. He's conquered death. He is the Messiah. Paul had to go back into the Old Testament that he knew so well. He was looking for a Messiah, remember? But a mighty, a warrior Messiah who would come for mighty people, people like Saul, people who knew the law and knew it well, who abided by it. But now he had met the risen Jesus and he had to learn that the Messiah, Jesus, had come not to save the mighty, but to save the weak. To save people like you and me who have failed, who have rebelled against God. This is why the Messiah came. Saul sits in the dark for three days thinking, praying, rethinking. Everything he knew about God, everything he knew about himself, it was a time of inner conflict. Confusion before the illumination comes. A casting into the darkness in order to see the light. Now, all true conversion has an element like this. We come to a point in our own lives where we see, I've been going this way. I've been living this way. I thought I was on good terms with God. But now I see that maybe I was wrong. I've been living my whole life doing these good things and trying to avoid those bad things. I thought, therefore, I was on good terms with God. But now I see that maybe, just maybe, all along, I was wrong. Who is this Jesus? Why did he die? What does he promise to those who believe in him? Inner conflict. That's the second part. There's one more. At the end of the story... We see change. Paul talks about how he changed, even in his own thinking, in Philippians 3. Before we get to the very end of the story, look at this passage just very quickly with me. This is Paul, the same man, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, writing later. And he tells us the shift that occurred in his own understanding. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. See, Saul had an impressive resume. Remember, he was a Pharisee. He knew the law well. He even said, I was blameless when it comes to the law. But when he meets the risen Jesus and writes about it later, he says, I considered all of that as rubbish. Everything I was living for before, I considered it as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is a shift in his thinking and his understanding, and it leads to a change in his life. That's what we see at the end of the story here. Heart and life change. Now there's a man named Ananias that I need to introduce you to before we can see how Paul's story concludes here. Saul is lying in the dark. Remember where we left him? He's there in the dark. He's fasting. He's praying for three days. Meanwhile, somewhere else in Damascus, Jesus calls to a man named Ananias. We don't know a great deal about this man, Ananias. We know he was a disciple. And Jesus says to Ananias, I'm sending you to Saul of Tarsus. Now, Ananias knows Saul's reputation. He's heard the stories of what this man has done in Jerusalem. He's scared to death. And so Ananias at first says, Lord, are you sure about this? I mean, I have heard the stories of this man. Really? Me? Are you sure? But eventually... He submits to the Lord's plan. See, there's this recurring theme in the Bible. When something needs to be done, it will be done through a person who is obedient, though afraid, obedient to God's plan. Ananias, with trust and trepidation, I'm sure, sets out to find Saul. And when he comes to the house, here's what happens Ananias departed and he entered the house. He goes close to Saul, close enough to touch him. And don't forget, this is a man that, until very recently, he has known only as a persecutor and murderer of Christians. He goes close enough to touch him, and he says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, watch what happens. Something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. And for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, He is the Son of God. Ananias lays his hand on Saul. He tells Saul why he's there. Jesus sent me. The same Jesus who appeared to you on the road, Saul. Jesus sent me. Suddenly, Saul regains his sight, a casting into the darkness in order to see the light, remember? He regains his sight. He's baptized as a follower of Jesus. Now later, in Acts chapter 22, we learn that there was more to this conversation between Ananias and Saul. We learn that Ananias said to him, Call on the name of the Lord and be baptized. Saul confesses with his mouth, Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is my King. And he's baptized. This is a genuine confession, and we know it is. We know it comes from a heart that has been transformed because Saul's life has changed. Do You see here how the persecutor, the violent man, has now become the preacher. He's proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues. Now, you wouldn't necessarily know this just from reading Acts 9, so let me fill you in on an important detail here. We know from the book of Galatians, which this same man, Saul, who becomes Paul, also wrote, that when he first was converted, he actually went into the desert for a three-year period. He goes into Arabia. The writer of the book of Acts here compresses the chronology for us to keep the account short. Somewhere in Acts 9, there must be room for this three-year trip to the desert. So the point I'm making is that, yes, Saul is a changed man. It doesn't all occur overnight, though. He places his faith in Jesus. He looks to Jesus as the Messiah, and then he goes away for more time in prayer and study and comes back as the preacher of God's Word. Nonetheless, it is a change. It is a change of heart and life, a whole new way of life, a new conduct. And that's how we know it's a genuine change. Now there's his story. Remember, he holds this out for us and says that this is an example, a model, of all true conversion. So here's what I want us to do in closing. I want us to understand that as we look at this biography of Saul, there's quite a bit of theology that we need to unpack together. So I want to give you two theological points and then I want us to end with two very practical application-oriented questions. Okay. You got five more minutes you can give me? You with me? You tracking with me, yeah? Okay, all right. So here's the theology. Let's move from biography to theology here. When we talk about conversion, that's our big question for the day. Can people change? Can people be converted? We must understand that there are two sides to this coin. We can think of it as the divine side and the human side, or what God does and what we do. We see both of these in Saul's story. Conversion begins with regeneration. This is God's initiative. To be regenerated is to be born again. It's to be brought to life spiritually. See, the Bible, when it talks about unconverted people, it doesn't say that we are merely sick. It says that we're dead. The unconverted man or woman is spiritually dead, and so God must make the first move. God must bring us to life or regenerate us first. There must be that gracious collision, that sovereign grace of God. And there must be a human response. God brings us to life spiritually, changing our hearts, enabling us to respond to Him with what the Bible calls repentance and faith. To repent is to turn. I repent every time I leave Faith Church. I make a U-turn right out here on 113th Street. It's exactly what the word repent means. It's a change in direction, a radical reorientation of life. To repent is to turn away from our sin, to turn toward Jesus. Repentance it begins at a moment in time but it continues throughout life. All of the Christian life is a life of repentance and all of the Christian life is a life of faith. That's the other part here. That's our response, repentance and faith. Now faith. Faith is more than a verbal recitation of a prayer. It's more than saying a sinner's prayer. There's nothing magical about that prayer. It has no power inherent to it. Faith is more than a mental acceptance. In the Bible, faith has a cognitive element, an affective element, and a behavioral element. So it's mind or head, it's heart, and it's hands. We can put it simply like this. Faith is wholehearted trust whole life submission. Allegiance to a new king. A new king. That's what it means to have faith. So there's the theology. We need to apply it now. Two questions that we need to ask in closing. The first one begins with us. The first question we must ask is have I been Truly converted. I mean, after a, a passage like this, after a story like Saul's, we must ask this question: Have I been truly converted? Now it's very easy to be deceived here, so let me try to provide some help. Some people will remember the date, the location, all the details of their conversion. Some people. Some people will not. I don't. That might surprise you. I don't remember my conversion. My parents tell me I was five years old and that I was at Canaan Baptist Church and the pastor's name was Brother Duck, quack quack. But you know what? I don't remember it. I don't remember it. How do I know if I am truly converted? I don't know by looking back and trying to find an exact date I don't know by opening my Bible and making sure I have the date written down there no if you want to know if I am physically alive how do you determine that do you ask me for my birth certificate of course not how silly that would be you look to see if I'm breathing do I have a pulse am I standing in front of you now that's how you so how do you know if I'm spiritually alive you don't ask me for the date of my conversion you look to see if I am trusting in the gospel now am I living for King Jesus now that's how you know so are you trusting in the gospel now are you living for King Jesus now have you been truly converted but there's another question The second question we need to ask is, for whom should I pray? And this is where I want to leave you today. See, if it's true that conversion begins with this gracious collision, if regeneration is necessary and that's God's work, then all of our evangelistic efforts must begin with prayer. Because we're asking for something that we can't do. So, for whom should you pray today? Last week, as we closed, I asked you to search your own heart. Pray about why you don't evangelize. Today, I'm asking you to search your life. Who are the people in your life, in your family, in the house next door, at that desk? right next to yours who are the people for whom you should pray because right now they're lost they don't know Jesus they're on their own way just like Saul was but God can save them they can change anyone can change so for the next few minutes I want you to pray by name for whoever it is that the Lord brings to your heart this morning and as you pray for him or her make sure you're ready because maybe, just maybe the Lord wants to use you in that person's life like I did last week, I'm going to get out of the way you spend a few moments in prayer